seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 24. By the way, this is uh, something that I meant to uh, meant to say at the end of last week's sermon. So this isn't actually part of this week's message, but I wanted to uh, just say it to you now, even though it's late. Better late than never. Uh, one of the, and I'm going to reread this text here in just a moment that we covered last week to remind you of the context. But we st- looked at verses 4 through 14 of Matthew 24. And one of the conclusions that I came to and I shared with you in verse 14 is that um, the gospel of the kingdom does in fact need to be uh, proclaimed um, uh, to essentially uh, the whole world. And I pointed out how many, many uh, language groups around the world don't have the scriptures translated into their language at present. Uh, I can't remember the number from the sermon, but it's many hundreds. I think it might have been, actually, it was, it was 704 languages have been translated and something like 1,600 have not been. So there are lots of people that are utterly unreached. And the point is that the gospel of the kingdom needs to be reached, uh, needs to be proclaimed in the whole world for witness to the nations. And only then will the end of the ages come. The end of the ages there being the second coming of Christ when Jesus comes uh, in judgment uh, to judge the sheep and the goats. And thank you. And uh, uh, and that day will come, but it will only come after the go- after the gospel witness has gone out, gone out into the world. And the post millennial fo- post millennial folks, I'm leaning in that direction these days, um, believe that uh, there will be a great uh, a great harvest uh, at the uh, at the end of the age before Jesus arrives of souls, including among and this this is definitely biblical, uh, Romans chapter eleven the the biological descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Obviously, we don't have large numbers of Jews that have become Christians yet. There are Messianic Jews, but they're a small group of people, relatively speaking. Um, and so the point I'm making is that Jesus, if, if my assessment of, this, of the meaning of verse 14 is correct, Jesus isn't coming back anytime soon. But that's okay. That's okay. He has his timing. Um, and, but the, the point is... We need to be. Uh, we need to endure. We need to be faithful, uh, uh, and we need to do what God has called us to do in our respective callings, and um, uh, and we need to not always be looking for uh, Jesus uh, Jesus coming because of some event that happened in uh, Saudi Arabia or Israel or England or what have you. Um, uh, I I'm convinced that that uh, kind of looking for Jesus to return and signs of his return in the immediate future are improper. Uh, and uh, we don't have so much trouble with that in, in Reformed circles, but, uh, but there are still folks that do that, uh, in the, lots of folks that do that in the evangelical world, and I would suggest to you that that is uh, not uh, something that we should be spending a lot of time thinking about. We just need to be about the business of serving the Lord faithfully. As Christians. Okay, that was last week's text. Let's read, starting at the end of Matthew 23, I'm just going to read verse 37 of Matthew 23 and following all the way down to verse 35 of chapter 24. Listen reverently as I read God's word to you. 
This is the tail end, by the way, of Jesus' uh, condemnation of the religious leaders, of Israel's religious leaders, and by implication, all those that agree with them and were following the godless, um, uh, perverted uh, Judaism that these religious leaders of the first century espoused, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. So Jesus says at the end of that, verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. <clears throat> How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you shall not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he answered and said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, Not one stone here shall be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. And you will hear of you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then They will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and will deliver up one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And because because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations. And then the end shall come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the rooftop not go down to get the things out that are in his house. And let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babes in those days. But pray that your flight uh, may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. 
For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. If therefore you say, if therefore they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go forth. Or, Behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For, just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Whenever the corpse, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Amen. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your scriptures. Uh, We thank you for um, the fact that you are the Lord of history. And you have decreed everything that will ever take place in the created realm. Uh, and that is why you can uh, tell what the future is going to be like and what's going to happen. And you can prophesy through, uh, prophesy rather through, uh, men such as, uh, the prophets of old, or you yourself can prophesy as you did, uh, at the Mount of Olives with the disciples standing around. And it will come to pass because you have decreed it to come to pass. And you are the Lord of history. We pray that we would be instructed by this, our analysis of this passage. Would you please help me, Lord, um, not to say anything that would be contrary to the meaning of the text. Would you please help me to bring out its meaning for us. Uh, strange and wonderful though this text is, may it please bless our souls and honor you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> kids. Where are all the kids? Okay. Kids' eyes. Here we go. Um, kids, children, you know what a prophet is? You've heard the term, right? I just used it in the sermon just a moment ago. You've heard of a prophet. You may or you may not know what a prophet is. A prophet is someone who knows what's going to happen in the future before it actually happens. And he already knows what's going to happen. And oftentimes he tells other people, this is what's going to happen in the future. Now, that's not the only thing Uh, a biblical prophet does, he also preaches. And there's a sense in which the minister today still fulfills that portion of the prophetic office. That would be me up here right now. 
but I'm not a prophet like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel was. Um, but, uh, but the part that I want you to focus on or think about right now is the, a prophet's ability to tell the future, what's going to happen in the future. Now, the Bible is full of such prophets. We just read Daniel a few moments ago. He was one of those prophets. Moses was one of those prophets. In fact, he was probably the greatest of all the merely human prophets of the Old Testament age. Um, Elijah was a prophet. Jonah, and you children know of other prophets, I'm sure, as well. They were all men who foretold, that is, told in advance the future, what was going to happen, and yet hadn't happened yet in, in history. But, children, the greatest prophet of all, do you know who the greatest prophet of all was and is? Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate prophet of the church. He's also the ultimate king of the church and the ultimate priest of the church. He is prophet, priest, and king of his people. And all those Old Testament prophets and kings and priests were merely shadows of Jesus. Jesus is the greatest prophet of all. And he is our prophet and our king and our priest. And in this passage, Jesus shows, confirms that he is, in fact, the great prophet of the church. Because he is the Lord of history, as I said a moment ago. Uh, and he is the Lord who, who determines what's going to happen in all of history. Uh, and this passage further confirms that fact because he's going to tell things about the future from his point of vantage his point of his vantage point when he was speaking this text 2000 year it was future to him but we're going to see in a moment it was not it's not future to us uh, at least the portion we're looking at today is not so we're going to get into that but first i want to remind you review briefly what we've learned about how to interpret this uh, passage this passage is called oftentimes the olivet discourse Jesus is uh, answering a question uh, that the disciples asked in verse 3, and he answers it over the course of the next uh, uh, three chapters. So chapter 24, 25, 26 are all co- uh, constitute the Olivet Discourse, Jesus' answer to the disciples' question on the Mount of Olives. And uh, understanding the disciples' question, as I pointed out the last couple of times we were in this passage, is key to understanding Jesus' response to the question. Okay, So let me explain. When we compare Matthew's version of the question that the disciples asked, he, they said, according to Matthew, his recollection, he says, tell us, when will these things, and Jesus had just been talking about the destruction of the temple, uh, that it was not one stolen was going to be left upon another. He says, they said, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And I'm going to explain that in just a minute, why they couple that with when, when is this temple going to be destroyed? Uh, uh, so when we compare Matthew's version of their question with Mark and Luke's version uh, in their accounts of the Olivet Discourse, it's clear that what the disciples wanted to know was two things. They wanted to know when the destruction that Jesus had just spoken of, of the temple, and by implication of Jerusalem, because you can't get to the temple unless you destroy Jerusalem, uh, when was this going to occur? Because this was very troubling news to them, that Israel was going to be, and the temple was going to be flattened. And the second thing they wanted to know was what sign uh, would indicate that 
this was about to take place, this destruction of the temple and of the city of Jerusalem, and perhaps wider, and it turned out to be much wider. It turned out to be all, all of Judea, pretty much. Anyway, that's what they want to know. And they were making an assumption when they asked this question. What was their assumption? Uh, they were assuming that the temple's destruction would have to take place at the end of human history. They couldn't fathom that it could take place at any other time than at the end of human history. Because, of course, that would be the most significant thing that ever happened in human history from their vantage point. The destruction of God's dwelling place. That was one of the assumptions they were making. And the second assumption they were clearly making was that the end of human history, when they thought the temple was going to be destroyed, would be brought about by the return of the Messiah, of Jesus, in glory. To judge the world and to judge um, evil. And they, uh, and they assumed that the end of human history was uh, when that all would occur. Now, their assumption that the end of human history would be brought about by Jesus' victorious bodily return to earth as judge, that was a correct assumption on their part. They got that right. Okay, And they undoubtedly came to this conclusion that Jesus' return, once he'd gone to heaven and came back, that that's when judgment was going to take place because he taught that in numerous places, including Matthew chapter 13, verses 36 to 42, and Matthew 16, uh, verse 27. We are not going to take the time to look at those passages, but among other passages, he says, I'm going to come and bring judgment when I come. Okay, So they knew that. Judgment's going to happen uh, at the end of the age, and Jesus is going to bring it. He's the Messiah. But they got that right. However, because the temple's destruction would obviously occur as a result of divine judgment, why else would God destroy his temple? Uh, because the, that destruction would had to come as a result of judgment, and because they already knew that the meeting out of divine judgment, um, that that meeting out of divine judgment would... Uh, would be a central component of Jesus' return to earth in glory. They wrongly concluded from that, those two facts, which were true, they drew a wrong conclusion. What was that conclusion? That the temple's destruction would occur whenever Jesus returned to earth bodily. Keyword bodily. Okay? In glory with his holy angels to bring, make wrong all rights and that sort of thing. The reason it's important for me to explain all this to you, and the reason it's important to understand that these are the assumptions that the disciples are making as they ask their question, the reason that's important is because it explains why they asked the question they did, the way they did, and it answers why Jesus answers the way he does their question. It explains both things, understanding what they're thinking, which prompted them to say what they said in their question. Well, in his answer to their pregnant question, Jesus actually answers two questions. They think it's one question. It's actually two. He, Jesus, discusses his bodily return to earth in judgment at the end of the ages in his, in his answer. And, and he also, in discussing his bodily return to earth, he discusses the events and phenomena that both will and will not be signs of that second coming of his. So he does that. He addresses the bodily return, his bodily return to earth, which we're going to look at, Lord willing, next week. 
starting in verse 36. But he also, um, uh, and by the way, last week, last week we looked at the disturbing events that were not regarded, to be regarded as signs of Jesus' imminent bodily return in verses 1 through, uh, excuse me, 4 through 14. That's what we looked at last week. Um, but Jesus also, in his answer to their question, speaks about the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple. And the sign, singular, sign that would immediately precede that highly significant historical event and tragic historical event. And it's in the passage that we're looking at today, verses 15 through 35, that this issue of the destruction of the temple and the sign that would precede it are discussed. That's what we're looking at in the remainder of our time. Okay? So, I'm going to go like a whirlwind because i got a lot of ground to cover. Uh, and hopefully this is not going to go much past uh, it normal, normally does. I ha- there are four points, but they're all fairly short. This is Here they are. First, we're going to look at the sign, which would indicate that Jerusalem's destruction was imminent. Secondly, we're going to look at what believers were to do when Jerusalem's destruction was imminent. Thirdly, we're going to look at what believers were not to be deceived by when Jerusalem's destruction was imminent. And then finally, and very briefly and lastly, how soon would it be before Jerusalem's destruction was imminent? Four things, okay? I'll repeat them as I go along, so if you're taking notes. So the first is the sign which which would indicate that Jerusalem's destruction is imminent. Verse 15 answers the question, okay? He says, therefore, so he's actually changing, not changing subject, but he's, he's moving to, on to the issue of, of, of Jerusalem proper, which was really what they had, all they had in mind was, when's this destruction of the temple going to take place, which obviously is going to take place at the end of the age when you return? That's what they're asking. So he's now dealing with, here's the destruction of Jerusalem. And he says, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Notice, that's Matthew's inserting his own words there. Let the reader understand what I just said when I quoted Jesus. He's like, listen carefully, is what Matthew's saying there. And I'll, uh, he says, then, and then he goes on and tells them what to do, which we'll get to in a moment. But the sign of, of Jerusalem's and ultimately of, of of Judea's imminent destruction was the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place. Now, the appearance of this sign—I'll get to what it means in just a moment—but uh, what, it, yeah, what that, yeah, what it means. But the appearance of this sign of Jerusalem's imminent destruction was foretold, as, as uh, Jesus indicates there, foretold by Daniel some four, uh, 600 years prior. 600 years prior is when Daniel wrote. And so I, I read that passage. In fact, for the sake of time, I'm not going to reread it. Um, just remember the passage that we were looking at uh, earlier, the Old Testament reading. It's that passage, Daniel chapter 9, verses uh, 25 through 27. He foretells of the this abomination of desolation coming uh, uh, and and what it's going to bring with it, and that is uh, destruction and judgment. Now, what is the abomination of desolation? Well, essentially, um, it's what what that it's a thing which is religiously or spiritually detestable. In other words, to God. 
It's offensive to God. And it's a detestable thing which makes the holy place where God dwells detestable to God by its presence there. Okay? Now, what is this thing? Well, first of all, with all due respect to some of my evangelical brethren, this is not something that is yet to come in the future. This happened in 70 AD. This clearly happened in 70 AD. It's clear to me anyway. Excuse me. This happened in 70 AD. And so there are two possibilities, I think. Um, and by the way, I had a fair amount of help with, uh, with, uh, with understanding of Matthew 24 from a gentleman, and I'm going to quote him later, uh, uh, a minister, a uh, Scotch-Irish Scotch minister named uh, David Silversides. He's gone to glory now. Uh, but uh, he, uh, he did some excellent exposition of this and a series of sermons. And uh, uh, I've been other places too. But anyway, I just wanted to give him some credit for what uh, some of the conclusions I've come to. But anyway, so there are two possibilities for the abomination, it seems to me, uh, in 70 A.D., and one is, it could be referring to when the zealots, the Jewish zealots, that was a faction of Judaism in the day, when the religious zealots, the Jewish zealots, allowed pagan Idumeans, Idumeans were, uh, were in the inhabitants of Edom, okay, which was a pagan country to their east, south and east. And the zealots allowed unbelieving Idumeans into the temple precinct, um, I believe it was uh, to help to help defend it just shortly before the the Roman armies uh, sacked Jerusalem, and the Idumeans were allowed into the temple complex, and 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 perhaps even into the temple building itself. That could be the referent. Another referent, a possible referent. I think this is perhaps a little bit more likely. Is it could also just simply refer to the surrounding Roman armies that were surrounding Jerusalem uh, in 70 AD before its destruction uh, and, and, and eventually penetrated Jerusalem and, and overran the Temple Mount. Um, and Luke seems to suggest in his version of the Olivet Discourse that this is what happened. So I'm just going to read that briefly. It's Luke chapter 20, verse 21. Um, uh, no, excuse me, Luke 21, verse 20. There we go, Luke 21, verse 20. And it says there, um, Jesus speaking, uh, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, a reference to the Roman armies, then recognize that her desolation is at hand. So I think that's the better guess. I'm not going to die on that hill, but... Um, but I think that's probably the better guess. It's a reference to uh, the armies uh, of, the, of the pagan uh, Romans, uh, whom God, by the way, is using as an instrument to punish his uh, apostate uh, church, of uh, the Jewish uh, church. So, either way, uh, the point is, when you see this sign, uh, you being the, uh, the, those that lived uh, at the time of uh, the destruction, of Jerusalem in 70 AD, or just before that, beware. And here, so, Marcellus Kick, uh, a uh, uh, Presbyterian uh, minister who wrote a, uh, a good book uh, some years back, a number of years back now, called The Eschatology of Victory. I don't agree with everything he said, but I agree with a good deal of it. Um, he explains 
why the presence of the Roman armies on the Temple Mount or the Idumeans, why that would be so, well, in this case, he's speaking of the Roman armies, why that would be so problematic to the Jews and to God. So here's what he says. Quote, the Roman army carried ensigns. Ensigns were either flags or banners of some sort. That's what an ensign is. So I'm going to use that word a couple more times. The Roman army carried ensigns consisting of eagles and, or, and images of the emperor to which divine honors were often paid by the army. So they would bow down before the ensign, which had the image of Caesar on it. In effect, uh, an image to worship Caesar, but through an image, which, by the way, is forbidden to Christians, too, in the Second Commandment. Yes. Um, so he goes on. He says, uh, The Roman army carried ensigns consisting of eagles and images of the emperor to which divine honors were often paid by the army. No, and this is Kick saying this, no greater abomination could meet the eye of the Jew than such ensigns to which idolatrous worship was rendered, uh, end quote. Now, to prove that, uh, to, to add uh, evidence, if you will, to uh, Kick's point that that was extremely offensive to the Jew of the day um, and to God, perhaps for different reasons, but also to God, is evident from something that we learn from the Jewish historian Josephus. Josephus tells of an incident in which Pilate, Pontius Pilate of, of, of biblical infamy, uh, he tells of a story, and he's, he's not a, you know, he was not a Christian. Uh, it's extra-biblical literature. But he tells of an uh, of a event, a situation in which Pilate ordered Roman soldiers under his, uh, under his uh, authority ordered Roman soldiers into Jerusalem to spend the winter there, to lodge there for the winter. And these soldiers were carrying ensigns bearing Caesar's image that I just spoke of. And when they entered Jerusalem, they promptly set up those ensigns for worship inside of Jerusalem upon their arrival in the city. Now, previous... Uh, procurators, remember Pilate was a procurator, previous procurators prior, prior to uh, Pilate had made sure that Roman ensigns that happened to be brought into the Jews' capital city of Jerusalem, they made sure that such ensigns didn't actually have images of Caesar on them. They, uh, they, they were concerned not to unduly upset the, the, the Jews that they, they uh, had conquered um, you know, and so they, they made sure those ensigns weren't uh, particularly offensive to the Jew, whatever, whatever banners they brought in. But that was not the case for Pilate. He didn't care. And so uh, Pilate uh, calls them in, uh, and they're set up for worship. A large crowd of Jews repeatedly comes to Pilate, um, and uh, he was down in Caesarea at this point in time. They go down to Pilate from Jerusalem, a whole whole flock of them, a uh, large crowd, uh, multitude, and, and they come before him and they repeatedly plead to him, please have these offensive things removed from our holy city. And he repeatedly refuses them, says, no, no, I'm not, I'm not doing a thing with those things. They're going to remain where they are. The crowd doesn't give up. They keep coming back to him. They keep appealing to him and yelling for him to do something about it. Um, and they refuse to stop. He tells them to stop. He said, go away, and they don't. 
And finally, he gets so angry, and there are Roman soldiers, there's a garrison, I think, of Roman soldiers in the area of this crowd, around, kind of surrounding the crowd, um, uh, as they're pleading with him. Uh, and he he's threatens to have the soldiers execute every person in the crowd. And it was a large number of people. And as the, as the account uh, is told by Eusebi, uh, Josephus, rather, uh, every single Jew there fell to the ground and laid his neck bare like this for execution. The whole place, they all fell down en masse and said, go ahead and cut our heads off. We're not going to stop pleading with you to stop violating God's city. Now, you know, you can appreciate their zeal. It was misplaced zeal because, again, I told you first century Judaism was a perverted form of biblical Judaism. It wasn't the biblical Judaism of the Old Testament. Uh, but they were zealous. You've got to give them that. Um, and uh, so they lay bare their necks. And Pilate, upon seeing their uh, stubbornness and their willingness to die for their cause, he finally relents and goes, okay, okay, okay. But that just tells you about how serious this was to have just a banner that had an image of Caesar uh, on it flying somewhere in the, ho- in the city of Jerusalem, um, let alone in the temple. Okay? So, what's, what's Jesus' point? And he says, he says there in verse 15, what's the point? Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of, and then he goes on. Jesus is saying, folks, for those of you that are alive when this event happens, um, and, and clearly some of the apostles were, and also a lot of other folks who would have uh, learned of what was said on this occasion, it's critically important that Christians, believers, Jews and Gentiles, but it would be mostly Jews who were converted to Christianity, who trusted in Jesus as their Messiah, it's going to be critically important for those of you that are living in and around Jerusalem and in Judea to recognize the sign, this sign, of Jerusalem's imminent destruction. Why? So that they, his people, believers, might avoid being caught up in the judicial wrath that God was going to pour out on the Jewish nation for its apostasy and covenant-breaking, as a long-standing, by the way, covenant-breaking as a nation. Um, God was going to pour out his wrath, and he wanted to spare his people, believers, Uh both Jew and Gentile, but they would have been predominantly, if not all, Jews. Um, and so, just quickly by way of application here before I move on, one of the points that we should derive from this whole passage, but particularly this first point, is that God is a God who will rain down wrath upon unrepentant sinners, including unrepentant sinners in the church. Israel was the church of the Old Testament. Uh, man, many people would disagree with me about that, but I think it's clear as, uh, clear as day. Israel was the Old Testament church. And God, for centuries, sent prophets to Israel saying, repent. We looked at Malachi this morning, those of you who are in Sunday school. Repent of your waywardness. Turn from your idolatry. Turn from your self-absorption. And from your uh, and from your perverted form of worship that you're rendering up unto me, and as and of course there were individuals that did, but as a whole the nation continually, with occasional exceptions, defied God, and God had finally had enough, and God rained down His wrath in 70 A.D. 
as a his covenant curse in its fullness upon a covenant-breaking people. That is, Jews who refused to bow the knee to God, which required that they bow the knee to Jesus, who was, had been among them 40 years prior to the destruction of the city. Okay. He's going to do the same to anybody here who rejects Christ or postpones Christ and says, I, I can come, anybody listening out there, who says, I'm not quite ready to do this whole Christian thing. I want to, I want to do my own thing for a little while. Maybe when I get older, I might, uh, I might get religious. I might get, get religion. That's, that's profoundly stupid to think that way. You don't have a guarantee of one more second, let alone of 30 more years. And when you, when you take your last breath, it is too late. You will suffer God's eternal wrath, rightly so, which we all deserve. I deserve it as much as you do. But I won't get it because I'm hidden in the wounds of Christ. And nobody who's hidden in the wounds of Christ by trusting in him to save them from God's wrath will receive that wrath because Jesus took it for them when he was on the cross. But you will receive it yourself if you do not bow the knee to Christ and trust in him alone to save you. If there's anybody listening to me that hasn't done that, that's all you need to hear in this sermon. Do it. For your own sake, please do it. Okay, second point. So, um, I may have to force you all to come back tonight and hear the last two points. All right. um, My first point was uh, the sign which would indicate that Jerusalem's destruction was near. That's the abomination of desolation in the holy place. Secondly, what believers were to do when Jerusalem's destruction was imminent? This is found in verses 16 through 22. We look at verse 16. Believers were living in and around Jerusalem, indeed in all of Judea, were to flee to the mountains. Then let those who were in Judea Flee to the mountains. I'll explain that in a minute. But they were to do this when they saw this sign of the imminent destruction of Jerusalem, of the, whole, of the abomination of desolation. They were to flee upon learning that the sign had appeared uh, that they had been warned about in the Olivet Discourse by Jesus 40 years prior. Um, we say in verse 17, uh, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to get the things that are in his house. In other words, just get out of there as soon as you possibly can because all hell is about to break loose. Well, not quite hell, but uh, the, human ver- you know, the earthly version of hell, uh, which is a detuned version of the real thing. Um, anyway, and then he says in verse 18, and let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. Hurry is the point. Flee immediately. Where? To the mountains. Why? Why to the mountains? Well, in order to understand why, you need to understand something about the ancient world. And that's this. When some nation, and this is in lots of places in the ancient world, including uh, Israel, when some nation was about to be attacked by some enemy of theirs and was about to attack their country, the people of that, in that country would instinctively flee into nearby walled cities with thick walls and high walls. That was their instinctive response. And in many cases, it was the appropriate response. Because uh, because those cities to which they would flee, they would flee there for protection 
obviously, uh, from their enemies because they had thick walls and high walls and also because they were the best places from which to mount an effective um, um, res- resistance to the oncoming uh, armies of whatever enemies they had. Okay? Well, in, in Judea, ancient Judea, Jerusalem was the city to which Jews would flee when under attack um, because it was so well fortified. It was very well fortified. And it was the city to go. Now, there were some other cities, too, that had walls around them, but none of them like Jerusalem's. But Jesus, of course, knew, because he's God, he knew that Jerusalem's great walls weren't going to be any match for the armies of Rome, which, of course, were his armies, God's armies, Jesus' armies. And so, clearly, nothing is a match for God's determination to do something that he intends to do. And he intended to punish his covenant-breaking apostate uh, people of uh, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who had not embraced the Messiah. God was going to have his way, and no walls were going to stop him. Israel's capital city, rather than being success- rather than successfully repelling the Roman army, was going to be overrun and was in the process, was going to experience some of the most appalling suffering this world would ever know. Verses 19 through 22 makes that point eloquently. But woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babies in those, babes in those days. But pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. I'm not going to go into why the whole thing about the Sabbath or women or that sort of thing, uh, because I don't have time. But uh, there's an explanation for all that. But the point is, it's going to be horrific. It was the point that Jesus is making. Uh, by the way, the famine produced by this long siege, it was a very long siege because, again, Jerusalem was very well fortified. The famine that was produced within the city because of this long siege, where everybody had fled, millions of people were inside the walls of those cities. 1.1 million were slaughtered, uh, we're told. But the famine was so severe um, as a result of the siege that the inhabitants of the city were resorting to cannibalism to keep from starving to death. I won't say any more because there are children present. Uh, But it was horrific. Uh, 1.1 million people died. Many of them, after the city walls were breached, by they died of crucifixion. The the Romans loved to crucify their their uh, their cap their captives, uh, their enemies, and they crucified scads of them apparently. Uh, which is a slow, horrific death, as we all know. And two two million others who were not killed were enslaved of Jerusalem's inhabitants. It was ghastly. But most, if not all, of the Christians, most of whom were Jewish converts to Christianity, most, if not all of them who lived in Judea, and especially in and around Jerusalem, were able to avoid that horror. How do we know this? Eusebius, who's another uh, guy, early church historian Eusebius, he informs us in his writings, speaking, writing about the, the destruction of Jerusalem, he informs us that Christians living in Judea in that year of the, uh, when the Romans uh, uh, conquered the land, they heeded these words right here. They knew them. 
had already been circulated, had 40 years, so the word had gotten out what Jesus said on the Mount of Olives to his disciples. And they heeded Jesus' warning, and they fled to mountainous locations, uh, largely to their east, across the Jordan River, and particularly one place called Pella. Some of you have heard of Pella. It's in modern-day Jordan. And uh, uh, it was, it's, a, it's in a very rocky uh, uh, place, uh, very fortified and well-protected place uh, and uh, that you can go to if you're, in the, if you're in Jordan these days. Anyway, they fled there, and they were, they were saved from that slaughter uh, by going there because they, they, were, we, they heard mountains. We've got to get. We've got to get going now. And they did. Most, of, most, if not all, we don't know if all of them, but uh, a large number of them, if not all of them, were uh, spared. However, unbelieving Jews, Jews that had not embraced Jesus as their Messiah, who had not listened to the preaching of the gospel of the apostles and Christ himself, they fled right into Jerusalem and paid an awful price for doing so. But the believers did not. What's the lesson here? For us, God can and often, not always, but can and often does protect believers from suffering that they would otherwise endure at the hands of God's enemies. Our nation is growing increasingly hostile toward Christians. I think all of you are aware of this. We have a government that is growing in strength and is actively suppressing us and our beliefs more and more. Uh, we may soon come to a day when it is illegal to hold to Christian doctrine, uh, and we will be punished for it. If that day comes, um, God may, as he did for the believers in 70 AD, provide a way of escape from that. But we also know from Scripture that there are times when he doesn't, and we may have to endure uh, suffering at the hands of God's and our enemies. Uh, but the, the fact of the matter is, come what may in our land in the future, we need to look to God and pray to God for protection from our enemies. I commend to you Psalm 91, uh, the prayer that the psalmist offered in Psalm 91. I'll just read the first seven verses quickly. But he says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. See, that's what we're going to need to say, too, if things get bad. My, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you will seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. You will not be afraid of the terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day or of the pestilence that stalks in the darkness or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. Amen. So we need to do, we need to remember that God can deliver us from anything he wants to at any time. That doesn't mean he always wants to deliver us, but we can certainly pray that he would. Uh, and we need to if those times come. Uh, and it's, uh, it's getting a little um, concerning as we look at the world history at present, but who knows. Thirdly, you're going to have to come back tonight. Or I could wait until next 
someday, I suppose. Anyway, uh, the, the last two points which we will cover are this. We're going to look at what believers were not to be deceived by when Jerusalem's destruction was imminent. And then um, how soon would it be before Israel's, excuse me, Jerusalem's destruction was imminent? That's in verses 34 and 35. So uh, I haven't quite decided whether or not we're going to do that tonight. I think I am. I think I'm going to make you come back if you want to hear this. Or you can listen to it online later. But we should try to come to God's worship whenever uh, it's officially called and it's, we're not providentially hindered. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage. It is deep, it is dark, but it is also hopeful um, because you demonstrate how you distinguish between uh, your people and the world and you treat your people with grace and kindness, even when you cause them to go through hardship. And we are grateful for that, Lord, that we can know that you will bless us uh, come what may, whether you call us uh, to go through difficulties in the future, affliction, uh, troubles, or not. You will bless us because you love us for Jesus' sake. We are most grateful. Lord, help us to not be scared of the future, not be scared of the enemies of you that uh, parade around us in this world and in our country. We pray that we would trust you and rest in you. Um, Being wise, we are called to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. But help us to do that, but to not be afraid and to know that you will care for us regardless, and bring us safely home to yourself. If there's anyone here, Lord, who doesn't know you savingly, who's never trusted in Jesus Christ alone, the God-man alone, to rescue him or her, would you please have mercy on such a one now? We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all, both now and forevermore. Amen.